the Boga Hunting Podcast. That's why I, I tried not to have cams on my bow. I don't have to deal with slippage or anything Shut like up. that. You just put a new string on there, you're fine. What is Boga? But seriously, that's the dumbest thing ever. It, it go, I am all about Just strap it to your pack. Really appreciate the fact that you're from Michigan and not Georgia. <laughs> you don't want to be the next Mark Kenyon. No. I'm a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that spot's taken. You can see how pathetic Jared's face is right now. <laughs> because that's how it looked. It was just like, is this good enough? Hello and welcome back to the Boga Hunting Podcast, everybody. This is a show for hunters of all skill levels looking for knowledge and experience. So follow along and let's strengthen your hunt. First light. First light camo. We uh, rock a lot of their gear a lot of the time. In fact, on a daily basis, I wear an article of first light clothing. Great stuff. If you are a whitetail hunter, it's great stuff. If you hunt out west, we love it. Their wool is top of the line. Merino wool is the way to go. Firstlight.com. Another sponsor of this podcast is HuntWise. It's an app that's basically your one-stop shop when you want to do anything with hunting on your phone. It's got social media. It's got mapping software. It has a place to buy gear. It's it's awesome. If you want to learn more, go to HuntWise.com. Handcrafted in a small northern Michigan town, Bivouac Bow Company is Michigan's premier traditional archery manufacturer. Their machines and sanders are all purpose-built, and they only use the highest quality materials available. To meet the bowyers and their truly one-of-a-kind bows, visit bivouacbowco.com. If you haven't heard yet, there's a lot of buzz around saddle hunting these days, and if you're anything like us, you want to use the best gear available. If you're thinking of trying your hand at saddle hunting this year, don't settle for some knockoff brand. Use the saddle company that has been doing it since 1961. Visit trophyline.com to find out more. One of the reasons we've been so successful hunting in the backcountry is because we've had quality products to work with, and we've decided to partner with Seek Outside for a couple of reasons. All their products are really made to improve the backcountry experience, whether that's backpacks, tents, stoves, or other backcountry gear. These guys really know how to make a quality product. So if you want to learn more, head over to SeekOutside.com. Last but not least, Stierka. Optics. Sturka Optics. Do you say Stirka? I say Stirka. Great binoculars, great rifle scopes. Yeah. I'm actually going to be rocking one on my uh, AR build that I have. A little red dot action. Mm-hmm. Great warranty made in the U.S. Uh, check them out. Stirkastrong.com. Today we are continuing this month's series on how to create your own whitetail paradise. We'll be looking at this as a 101 level guide to ownership and management of whitetail hunting property. As a relatively new land manager myself, one of the greatest resources that I have relied on is the Quality Deer Management Association. And today we are joined by two of their staff members, Josh Hilliard and Matt Ross. Welcome, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. You bet. Um, before we dive in, can you guys give us just a quick little rundown on who you are, what your title is, and how you ended up with QDMA? All right, I'll, I'll uh, just take the lead, Josh, if you don't mind. Uh, my name is Matt Ross. I work in the conservation department for QDMA. My official title is assistant director of conservation. I've worked for QDMA going on 15 years. 
prior to, to QDMA, I, I worked in a consulting role. I know you guys want to talk about land management. So I uh, worked for a private consulting company that did forestry and wildlife uh, consultations across the Northeast. I, I'm actually located in New York. Our national office is in Georgia, but I, I'm I'm at home and I work in the field just, just like Josh and about a third or a little bit more than a third of our entire staff is in the field. So that's where I'm located. And uh, I oversee some staff members that do conservation work. I oversee a couple of different programs. One of the more popular ones is a class that people can take to learn how to manage deer and manage land. And that we call Deer Steward. And then we have some land programs where people can enroll kind of private landowner stuff. But a lot of different hats, as we all probably do in our day-to-day jobs. I, I handle a lot of stuff, but that's that's my my background. But I'll I'll say last first and foremost, I'm a deer hunter. Yeah, um, you know, it's I, good to hear. I got it. I got into this because because <laughs> I'm passionate deer hunter. Looked into different schools, went to a couple different degrees in wildlife or forestry, and we can get into that if you're interested. But most uh, definitely, I'm, I, I'm passionate about it because I'm a deer hunter and I love I love it. I live for it. What part of New York? As, as I'm sure all of us. I live just outside of Saratoga Springs, New York. Upstate, for folks that don't know New York, I'm not far from Vermont. Yep. Can be in Vermont pretty quick. The home my wife and I own now is probably uh, not quite 40 minutes from Vermont, but I've, I've actually lived in Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts throughout my uh, adulthood and uh, live in New York now, which is where I grew up. So Interesting. Yeah, the, the yeah. Uh, East Coast hunters, are. there's a lot of you guys out there. More than people, I think, assume. Yeah. New York's a big state. We have a lot of deer. We have a lot of deer hunters. It's not um, uh, not quite like Michigan, but pretty close <laughs> in terms of uh, comparable <laughs> size. I mean, I think we have uh, somewhere around 600,000 hunters. I think you guys have more than that. Um, but New York's a big state. We have a, we have a lot of a lot of deer hunters in the state. A lot of deer, too. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Well, nice to have you here. Uh, Josh, you want to introduce yourself here? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So my name is Josh Hilliard. I'm a regional director for QDMA. Uh, I live over in the Brighton area of Michigan. Um, I'm in the grassroots department, so I'm working with our branches and our volunteers here in Michigan, Indiana, and then I cover Western Ohio. In total, I cover about 30 branches, so helping them out with their educational events, their fundraising events, uh, kind of being their liaison between uh, you know, the, the national office and, and their branch to, to make sure they've got everything that they need. I'm coming up on uh, three years with QDMA in like a couple of days, like May 1st will be three years. So prior to my time with QDMA, I was actually, actually in the financial world and made a, a pretty big shift I would say. out of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and like Matt said, because I'm a deer hunter and, and I'm passionate about it and I love it and an opportunity arose and I jumped all over it. So been a, been a great three years, got to meet a lot of, a lot of great people throughout uh, not only in my region, but from around the country at the various national events and stuff that we, we have going on as well. So got yeah. a lot of great members and volunteers. Well, it's great to have you guys here. Uh, Jared, I'm going to put you on the spot uh, before we dive into QDMA. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, who's older, you or QDMA? Ooh. I'm going uh, to say me. You'd be wrong. You're both the same really? age. You're 1988. I did a little research yep. coming in. 1988. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the formation of QDMA, how it kind of came about, um, and, you know, educate Jared a little bit, because clearly, you know, he has no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, QDMA, 32 years ago, was formed actually from a person that's still uh, affiliated and works 
with us. I mean, he's not a full-time staff member, but a guy named Joe Hamilton. He started the organization because at the time he had, and still is a naturalist. He's a natural resource manager. He worked for the state of South Carolina and he was managing a region of South Carolina um, and oversaw a bunch of uh, basically rotting gun clubs. They call them hunt clubs in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hundreds of them, I think, uh, you know, somewhere between 800 and a thousand clubs that he oversaw. And he would go to those clubs and help them, get tags and set, you know, set guidelines for their seasons. And uh, he was seeing at the time, you know, late eighties, the way people were hunting, you know, like probably the generation before all of us, um, it was, you can say Brown, it's down, but it was like opportunist. Anytime you see a deer, you're shooting it, not really thinking about what you're taking. It was just a deer is there. I'm going to shoot it. And he had heard about a concept because of his professional dealings and going to different conferences, there was a book written and actually the book was written in the seventies. And uh, the author of that book was from Texas, but wrote a book called producing quality uh, whitetails um, or, and along those lines, the, the concept was let's pay attention to what we're shooting. And if we want to improve our, our hunting, um, let's make choices and, and kind of select for what we shoot. Well, long story short, he took that book and applied it to the clubs in South Carolina and said, hey, I've learned about this concept. Let's let's start trying to apply it. And the way he did that is through just like you guys are doing today on this podcast, through communication. At the time, it was a newsletter. It was just trying to keep people abreast of the latest information. So they created a newsletter. They gave it a name and they formed this pseudo club or group or association and the name at the beginning was it was regional based um but it was called the quality south carolina quality deer management association Hmm. and that's where qdma came from not from the book but from the concept quality deer management and it grew and you know hit a fast forward button it grew out of the state it grew across the country um it grew internationally you know we're in canada we're in different countries and it can be applied to any species. I mean, deer is uh, obviously a huntable species. It's a game animal. And, and you can apply it to really to any game species. But the, the principles of deer management or quality deer management are to manage for, for health of that species. Make sure there's not too many. Um, make sure it's balanced. You know, there's not way more males than females or way more females than males. Um, and making sure that there's education involved so that the the users, the, the consumptive users know what they're doing. That's QDM. And so that's how it was born. And here we are, uh, you know, 50 to 60,000 members later, we have, we have branches, we call them branches. And there's a reason for that, but across, you know, a bunch of the Eastern U S and uh, I first learned about QDMA coming out of grad school and being a deer hunter and actually trying to get into wildlife biology. I'm like, where has this group been? Right. And I joined, I became a member. I remember I got like this plastic coffee mug member, <laughs> and uh, eventually, you know, started getting a magazine and eventually started a local, local chapter or branch in New Hampshire. And I was a volunteer and did banquets and all that stuff and, a, and saw a job opening and, and applied and got it. But that's kind of the, the fast forward button through QDMA's history, but it was, it was born because a biologist wanted to improve things. And in that part of South Carolina today, um, even though the state of South Carolina has pretty traditional rules in terms of how you buy your license and everything, you know, it's still, there's not a lot of differences in terms of what you can shoot for bucks 
how many does you need to shoot. Um, there has been changes actually even more recently in the last two or three years, some significant changes. Um, but that area of South Carolina is voluntarily uh, practicing QDM. There's pretty big land holdings there, relatively right. speaking to New York and Michigan. You know, the average property size is a lot bigger than where we, we all live. Um, but there's a lot of people that just, you know, raise their hands up and say, uh, yeah, I want I want to do that. I want to practice QDM, and and they they follow those rules and and try to do it. But that's where QDMA was started, 1988, because of a biologist that wanted to educate hunters in a region of the state. Yep, just as old as Jared. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty incredible what you guys have grown into today. I mean, growing up, um, you know, I was in a family that. We hunted. I don't know if I would consider ourselves hunters. Uh, lots changed for me personally in you know, the last handful of years that I've really gotten back into it. Um, now that I've got a couple of young boys and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, you always hear QDM and QDMA thrown around. And it was just always this, this thing in the background. And as I became a land manager myself, um, digging into just the amount of resources that you guys have created and the amount of um, research has been put into this stuff is really incredible. Yeah, we're si- we're a science, you know, we try to follow the science, science-based organization, and really the bread and butter of QDMA, and Josh, feel, you know, feel free to kind of bounce off of what I'm going to say, but it, when I first learned about the organization, even today, you know, the way, the, the way we process information and how we get it today is different than it was five years ago or, right. th- you know, 32 years ago, but the, the premise was education, um, and it still is, um, you know, we don't need, we don't have a critical species. It's not like there's a lot of other conservation groups out there that do great work and they're not necessarily preserving, but they're trying to, to make those populations more viable, more huntable, all those things. There's deer everywhere. You right. go to downtown, you know, right. um, Grand Rapids, you go to downtown, my local town here, you might see a deer in the middle of the town. You might see them in rural areas. Right. They're not an imperiled species. And, you know, back in 88, deer hunters were not imperiled either. We had a lot of hunters. We're losing hunters today, and that, that's another whole thing. But the idea of QDMA came around because it was like there's this variable army of people out there that if we just teach them, you know, how to change right. what they do, it will affect change. It's, it's a cultural shift, and, you know, we can raise that mission accomplished sign because the way that deer hunters – hunt today and this and and the 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 way the harvest looks it you know the actual harvest statistics on an annual basis across the country is very different than it was in 1988 yeah how hunters choose to 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 do that but we're we're education based right josh yep absolutely i mean that's that's what we're uh we're all about that's what a lot of our resources are is education based and and helping you know everyday hunters uh you know uh, how to how to practice QDM? How to how to do the right things? What to plant in their food plots? Right. You know, just um, you know, cruise through our website. I mean, there's all kinds of information out there that anybody can apply, whether they own land or not own land. Well, and it's you guys have an interesting association because I would imagine there just aren't as many in the world that have all their members so actively involved in the thing. Like you guys, you guys have all your members are active hunters, which means you know you guys can really influence uh, the landscape pretty heavily pretty quickly um, by you know providing the right information um, and right recommendations for how to create a better deer herd 
Yeah, and you know what's neat about hunters is, you know, we we get into fights, I guess, you know, where we disagree about stuff generally, you know, and not just deer hunters, but all hunters. But mm-hmm. we're, we're, we are pretty good at communicating. There's some good research that shows that um, we influence each other, right. you know, like um, whether you're friends or not, just just there's a domino effect that if somebody or a group of people start doing something, um, you know, it actually impacts in a positive way what, what their neighbors might do or what other family members do because they see, you know, you lead by example. And that's true with, you know, look at today's day and age in terms of how we communicate about all kinds of things like the craziness going on out in the country today. But hunters talk and they teach and uh, um, that's good. You know, yeah. we, we want we want to as, as a as a kind of a, a group and a minority in the general public. Um, deer hunters and deer and hunters generally stick together and we all want to to improve things whether or not people focus on that or not but education is a great way to do that yeah it's not just what feels right it seems like for you guys again it's going back to the science i wanted to touch real quickly on um, just a few of the things that uh, kind of make up qdma and going back to the research uh, portion the um, whitetail report that you guys do annually is incredible that is, yeah. that is something that not until the last few years I've really started uh, digging into. Um, but even over a few years, you can see shifts and changes starting to happen. And it's just, I, I find it fascinating to compare our local, you know, our state to surrounding states. And you see the, um, the rules that are put in place in some of these states and how potentially they could be affecting some of those, those numbers and, uh, I want to commend you guys for the uh, the work that you've done in putting that stuff together and then turning that into the education that you have. Yeah, thank you. It's a monumental effort every year. And, uh, um, you know, honestly, it's just another facet of education. We initially started, it's been over 10 years we've been doing that thing. And we're in a unique situation in that. Um, you know, each state does their own level of education to the hunters in those states or, or each province. Um, and then there will be some regional, there's some regional partnerships or regional efforts where you might learn about something across a two or three or five state region. Um, you know, if there's a disease outbreak or something like that, but there's not many national efforts of looking at what's going on with deer. So when we first started doing the report, the idea was, hey, it's another form of educating the public, but hey, you know, we have great relationships with a lot of states. Let's collect the data that's being done at that level, at the mm-hmm. state level, and then compile it, analyze it, and tell people what we see, do a little, you know, story about what's going on. It's it's our state of the union. It's the national outlook on deer. Yeah. And um, a secondary effect of that has been the communication side of it because there's there is a lot of media that follows when that comes out and they talk about it and we have in an indirect way been able to elevate the awareness of our organization um but i use it as a desktop reference i know a lot of people uh use it as i mean even though i'm one of the authors right um i can't remember all that stuff so there's a lot of times i'll get a question from a member from michigan or you know florida or somewhere and i'm like man i know we wrote a chapter about that at some point i may have even been the one that wrote it but I, i need to you know, look it up and it's great to look that information up and see what's happening at, at that level. So thank you. And if folks are listening and they don't know uh, about it, you can go on our website and download every single one. They're free PDFs. Um, yeah. 
they're pretty broad documents. They're, they're heavy, but they're all free to the public. We don't, you know, they're all, they're for you to take. Are you, uh, what time of the year are you releasing those things? I I would imagine it takes most of the year to put together. It's about a three month process, believe (laughs) it or not, to do it. Um, we start writing, well, actually end of the summer is when the, we start the process of organizing and not really start writing it into the fall. It's actually a really good time of year to write because right. our travel is minimal in the fall because our members are hunting and we're yeah. hunting. So it, for me personally and for the staff that contribute, it's great because I can you know get a hunt in in the morning. I come back to the office. I do a lot of writing during that time of year and hunt in the afternoon if I, That's if I can. That's a pretty sweet <laughs> setup. Yeah. 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 yeah, but it's it's it starts then, but it has the the data from it is from the the last we have to have all states contribute as many as possible so right. um a lot of states uh, are you know your seasons are in the in december november december even january time frame but there are some states that still have seasons going into february right arizona um, and, even, and stuff yeah exactly Southwest. And, and some seasons open up in july and august in different parts of the country so there's not much of a window so there is a lag effect in every white tail report. So our 2020 white tail report includes the full seasons of data from 2018. Because yeah. the 2019 season, 2019, 2020, you know, we're in April, just ended. And we, we publish it in January. We typically try to put it out around when ATA and SHOT Show happen yeah. because that's when there's a lot of industry meeting. Yep. And we have in the past done press conferences at that. So we try to put it out in January, but it's a year old data. I hate to say it's a year old, but yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of seasons that are still going on in January. So the 2021 uh, report will reflect this past seasons. Yeah, yeah, and and even though that seasons may end in December, like right at the beginning of January, like here in Michigan, it may take agencies months to compile all the data right. to to even get it to us. So, sure. um, yeah, it's it's uh it's huge props to Matt and uh and Kip and, and their department because that is a ton of work that they put into this report and, and like you said it's out there for everyone to look at for free yeah so. that's that's sweet and but it makes me wonder I mean you're, you're collecting all this data from all these states and I would assume you don't even you don't get all of them is there a political component to it do things get a little bit is there is there that side of this or is it pretty much everybody's pretty willing to share information they're, they're all willing to share I mean a lot of that's based on um, our, um, our, I guess, integrity or the comp- the, the personal relationships, everything comes out of relationships, right? right. The relationships we have with those state agencies and particularly their deer biologists, the, the, the state agency uh, biologists that are in charge of their deer programs. We try very hard to um, maintain a very good relationship with all of them, but it's their data. Um, and the report is broken down into two, two chapters or two parts the first part is all harvest data. Um, the second part is issues that we feel are kind of current events. Yep. And so we issue a, um, a survey to all state states um, or provinces and or provinces at the end of the summer and say, here's what we're looking for. We try to make it not too onerous on them. Um, otherwise, it becomes a hassle and they might not re- return that data. And we let them um, review it before it comes out. So that we can, they can see if they made a mistake or if we made a mistake transcribing it. It's not, um, you know, spelled incorrectly or or the data is incorrect. Sure. But on the pol on the politics sides, 
unfortunately, yes, there is a lot of politics in wildlife management, but we filter as much of that out as possible, as long as they're providing us accurate data, which it would behoove them to do that. Otherwise, yeah. it makes them look not great. Um, you know, we're, we're representing it as truthful and as, as unbiased as possible just from a, a third party. Yeah. So, so I would imagine you're a pretty data-driven individual. I like data. Yeah, I can imagine that. That's got to be a lot of spreadsheets you're you're dealing with. Yeah, there's a lot of spreadsheets. It's it's good though. I mean, we try to uh, minimize the interpretation and do a lot of just basic trend analysis. I mean, that's all you really can do. And uh, I think Mark, you were the one that was saying when it comes out, it's great to see how you compare to other states. It's hard not to do that, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, be like, oh, okay. You know, New York is doing this and. Uh, Pennsylvania just south of us is not doing that. Um, we try to be real clear that, you know, it's good to look at trends over time. Like what does New York look like over time? So, you know, a lot of folks focus on percent of yearling bucks in the harvest. So that's the youngest buck uh, segment. Yeah. And uh, New York is still not in the top, not, you know, number of states, but on, on a trend basis, uh, we have improved as a state. I'll just, you know, say and pro- props to our state agency yeah. um, uh, appreciably over over time. So, you know, like five, six years ago, the number was much, much larger than it was. Now we may not be leading the country, but it, things are improving. So it's nice to see that and um, communicate that to, to hunters. And our agency is, is uh, doing a better job, uh, we feel, communicating the benefits of that. It's not mandated, yeah. um, but it's like, hey, it's your choice. If you want this, you know, you, you can do that. So that's one thing people look at. There's a lot of elements to the white to report, but that's one folk people focus on, uh, particularly. So for the, the 2020 report, well, and we got some other things we want to cover, but I got to know, like who's, tri- who's hot, who's hot right now, who's trending <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, w- and you know, who else is maybe, uh, slipping a little bit. What's your hot take on the uh, 2020 report? Well, the 2020 report, I guess the the headline, if you were going to pick a headline nationally, was that um, we actually achieved, we, the country, the lowest percent of um, yearling bucks in the harvest ever, ever reported. And so now today, um, hunters, you know, we kill close to um, about 3 million bucks. There's about 6 million deer killed a year, about yeah. 3 million of that a box, about 3 million our antlerless deer it's not quite that exact broken down the middle but it's about what it is and today you've looking at the percentage of of one and a half year old bucks in the harvest it's the lowest ever reported at a national at a national um level uh it's been trending down since we started keeping track of the data since the 80s and uh it kind of hit a plateau there about two or three years ago and then it took another pretty big jump down last year so i think now it's like 31 percent or, or around there. What do you attribute um, that to? Uh, we expected it to, to flatten. <laughs> and in fact, we expect at some point it might actually increase a little bit. It might, it might ebb and flow a little bit. Sure. The reason I say that is because um, a lot of states are, are finding themselves dealing with chronic wasting disease. Yeah. And in those situations, one of the recommendations is to increase harvest across all bucks. Um, some states are focusing harvest on younger bucks because they disperse, but... Um, right in any event, just increasing the harvest across all age classes of bucks, just trying to kill more, more bucks. That will probably make that number plateau. I don't think 
And on a, on a, on a balance side, we don't need to see it lower than that. I mean, maybe at an individual level, at a property level, and maybe even on a small, small scale where you might have a county based, um, there are going to be places that are still way out of whack where, you know, there's way more does than there are bucks, but at a national level, it's pretty balanced. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a good success story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you caught me a little bit off guard. I haven't looked at the report in a little bit, so I don't know who's hot. But each state has um, things they're doing really well. Um, each state is probably doing things that they could improve on. And we like to, you know, focus on all all of those elements, but give props to the states that are doing good work in different areas um, and just make it part of the educational process. Yeah, yeah. Josh, what's your uh, what, how's Michigan doing right now? Yeah, no, I think it kind of depends on on what part of the report you're looking at yeah. um, to, to see how we're doing. You know, I think we lack in some areas um, some things that we need to work on here in Michigan. Antlerless harvest would be one of those. Yeah. I know Matt was talking about not trying to compare to other states, but, you know, regionally where we're at, we kill about 0.7 does per buck killed okay. here in Michigan. Um, and just for uh, comparison sake, a couple of the states around us, uh, Ohio and Indiana are both at 1.4, um, Pennsylvania is at 1.5. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're more than doubling us in some of those areas in antlerless harvest. And then we also kill a lot of bucks. Um, I think we were second in the nation, Matt, if I remember right about, uh, uh antler buck harvest, total antler buck harvest, I think only behind Texas, which is yeah. might as well be their own country. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, we kill a lot of bucks and, and not as many does. So I, I think one area that we need to focus on here in Michigan is is having a, a, a little bit higher pressure on the, the antlerless side of things and, and areas that need it. Obviously, southern Michigan is, is a lot different than northern Michigan. Yeah. Um, and, and those things maybe look a little different on the ground management. But there's definitely areas of the state that could withstand a, a little bit heavier doe harvest. I feel like in Michigan, the, the, the culture is, you know, you put on your red plaid, you go up north, and you shoot the first thing with horns, the first thing with yep. antlers. And yep. uh, that's been the way for, I mean, I just feel, I know it's that's the case for a lot of states, but especially like that northern Michigan deer camp idea is hard yeah. to break. Yep, for sure. And I think that's um, that's a reason why you see a lot of this stuff, especially the buck harvest being so high. And, you know, you get two buck tags here in Michigan, and, and I think a lot of people will fill those, those tags and and, and not spend any time focusing on the antlerless segment of the population. Yeah. But I think we're definitely starting to see those numbers get better. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that the 2019 numbers will, will continue to have an uptick in the antlerless harvest with some, some different regulation changes in, in some of the CWD areas and things like that. I, I'm thinking that we should be looking a little bit better on the antlerless side of things for, for 2019 when those numbers come out. So both regionally and nationally, how are you getting this information out there? Like what for QDMA are kind of your main modes of communication to both your members and beyond? Well, our, what's our main modes? Um, we have a pretty diverse uh, array of ways to communicate to both members and, and people that are not members, but supporters or just follow what we do. Um, we have a membership magazine that everybody that joins, just like um, other conservation groups you join, you, get, you are part of our, our, our association and you get a magazine. We, we send those out and it's a it's a hard copy that, that folks get and they love it you know i i, I remember um getting that when i first joined as well and i've saved every single one for all those years and i have them on my bookshelf they're, they're great um, but as time has changed you know we really try to um become more modern so i mean if you 
jump on a QDMA uh, on the QDMA website, you'll see all various different ways. Um, we're pretty strong on social media. Um, you know, one of the better ways to communicate today um, and have staff that work on that. So we're on all different social media channels. We have a free newsletter. Um, whether you're a member or not, you can sign up on our website, and that's a it's an email newsletter that comes out Thursday morning. We have a, we have a pretty large database of emails that goes out more than double what our membership is. Um, you know, so that means there's a lot of people that are interested in what we say and what we have to do. You know, what we're telling them in terms of deer management. In that in that e newsletter, there's always education, but there's also you know other information as well. Um, one of the more popular parts of that is uh, how to, you know, aging a buck on the hoof. Yeah, I've so if seen you that. like that, if you like that, it's at the bottom of every newsletter. It keeps pretty good and engaging. Um, we also have you know, some video YouTube channels, um, a YouTube uh, video on through social as well, and then we come out with a new blog at least once a week. Um, it's promoted through that e newsletter. Um, we have our staff, uh, we don't have a podcast, but we have a pretty um, strong podcast presence. So, you know, once you're done recording this and yep. it's live and everybody can see it, it's going to be posted on QDMA's media page. Um, we have we have a lot of links there for folks who can go and listen to episodes that Josh or myself or other staff have been on uh, other podcasts. So um, I'm probably missing some, but we, we try to stay pretty, pretty active and modern. Our communications team is not huge. In fact, QDMA is not a huge organization. I, I think we bring across an aura that we have staff yeah. in every corner of the country, and we don't. Um, I think the largest we've been as an organization was somewhere between 35 and 38 employees, and we're not that high right now. Um, you know, so we, and that's from everybody that works in our customer service to people that are in the field to, you know, top to bottom. Um, we're, you know, around 30 staff members. And our communications team includes a couple people that, that do graphics and then a couple other people that, that put out the magazine in our, in our, e, you know, our digital communications, not huge. Um, so we're, we're, I think we're bad and pretty good for our size. Yeah, for sure. Are you missing anything, Josh, in terms of, yeah. uh, no, I think you hit, I think you hit a lot of it there. And, and, you know, I, I think just by providing the information on our website or do the white tail report for free, I mean, you know, anybody can access it. Um, you know, on the YouTube stuff, we've got some some new stuff about like deer hunting 101 series that I think is going to be real popular for a lot of new people that that are looking to get into hunting. Um, that's a that's a great series that that just launched within the last I don't know six eight months something like that, Matt. Um, so I, I think we're you know we're getting stuff out there across all platforms and trying to be as visible as possible for people. Yeah. I'll also say, you know, we, we shaped and kind of carved the, the messaging that we put out over time. We try to stay progressive. Um, you know, before I was an employee, the messaging was really strong on the land management side. Right. How to make things better on the land, how to manage that property or how to manage, even if you don't own it, how to manage that land. And uh, over time, I, you know, probably around when I was hired, you know, so still a long time ago, the messaging was still that, but we started to, to blend in more of the hunting strategy, you know, how to strategize that both in your land management, but, you know, how to set up a property so you could kill, kill deer, you know, how, how to, how to hunt it smarter. So we're talking about hunting pressure. Yep. We started seeing the research that was coming out of colleges and universities about deer shifting from population stuff to habitat 
to hunting pressure. There was a lot of hunting pressure. Like when we go in the woods, what do deer do and how do they react and putting like collars on deer that was around the nineties, early two thousands. And more lately, you know, and we still message both of those really strong. Um, but more lately as an organization, we're, you know, we're trying to focus on what are the limiting factors to make us hunters successful, you know, both at an individual and both at a, at a national scale. And, you know, we're obviously paying attention to the things that are going to impact us the hardest. Um, and those include some of the things like chronic wasting disease. We're investing more in research there. We're trying to message that differently. So on the communication side, you'll see stuff coming out from QDMA, hashtags, uh, infographics, those kinds of things that have to do with awareness to, you know, chronic wasting disease. Or another, another big issue in the deer world is the, what we call the R3 movement. Uh, Josh just talked about this in terms of becoming a new hunter. We are losing hunters. I, I alluded to that. And that's a huge deal because the, the engine that is our industry is fueled through hunting. I think most hunters know that. A lot of non-hunters don't. I mean, only 4 or 5% of the entire public are hunters. But we know as hunters, I mean, you guys buy your license, you know that that goes towards good conservation. But the, the reality is, as we lose hunters that that engine is losing the fuel right. and we do need new people to hunt. So we have to look for new places to, to do that. I mean, uh, my wife is putting our kids probably getting on the bath right now and getting ready for bed. My kids, I take them out hunting. I hear kids yep. in the background and somebody said, I think it was uh, uh, Mark said, You're, you have a couple boys. You'll, you'll obviously introduce your kids to hunting. But the thing that we realized is we still need to do that. That's obviously very important, right. but as we we age and we change, you know, our kids are going to be distracted more and more like we were, you know, right. think about how we were in school and they're distracted by all these different things. We're losing that on, a, on, on one side. And on the other side is there's a lot of people that are interested in maybe starting to hunt that never had a parent or grandparent yeah. or aunt or uncle, and they want to be connected to it because of everything that's going on. So we need to also... I need to make the time to take out my kids and I try, um, but also make time to, to, you know, my buddy from college who's a, I, we were in forestry school together. He never, he grew up beside of Boston. He expressed interest in learning to hunt. I said, come on, you know, yeah. I had to make time for that too. So if you know anybody, if you're listening or any of you guys know somebody from church work, you know, a friend of a friend that is expressing a little bit of an interest to hunt. They don't have somebody to take them. We need to do that too. Yeah. We need to make that time. Yeah, you guys it, have put together some pretty uh, amazing initiatives too on that front too. Um, I know one of your most recent is the uh, Field to Fork program, which is uh, something I've already nominated myself for um, this year. And uh, can you just real quickly kind of talk about that, what that program entails? Yeah, Josh, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Because you're in Michigan and you got a great yeah. program going there. Yeah, we, we we've had uh, some some good success with that here in in Michigan. So basically, this field of fork program is is um geared towards getting adults into hunting um you know we're still very active in a lot of the youth programs and things like that but you know there's been a lot of research done that's found that you know you're getting the most bang for your buck if you will by by mentoring or getting adults involved in hunting they can go out and replicate uh, a hunt on their own they can drive to their hunting spot on their own they can they have some some income most likely that they can go buy a gun or a bow and some hunting gear. So we've really kind of shifted our focus to, to start focusing on these adults who are, have shown an interest in hunting and, 
And uh, Hank Forrester, who's our hunting programs manager at, at QDMA, uh, him and one of his friends went to uh, a farmer's market in Athens, Georgia, where our headquarters are, and, and signed up people at a farmer's market that, that were interested in, in sourcing their own protein um, locally. Um, and and what, better, what better way to do that than deer hunting? You know, I got deer in people's backyards in a lot of places. So um, we've really kind of taken that and ran with it and, and ramped it up at a, at a national level. Um, and started, you know, getting the states and branches involved. Um, we actually had four field to fork programs here in Michigan last year, um, five total in my region, but four of them were here in Michigan. So um, we've got branches that are really starting to pick, pick it up and, and run with it. And uh, they love doing it. Uh, you know, it takes one time for, for them to go through it and, and really see the engagement that some of these adults um, have um, and, and their interest in it. And it, it has really picked up, you know, the West Central branch there in Grand Rapids, Mark, I think that's who you were talking yep, about that's helping yep. out. Yeah. Um, they did their first program last year and it was great. Um, we did a couple of others and, and uh, one in the Lansing area, we partnered with the National Wild Turkey Federation. We had, I believe, nine people go through the Field to Fork event uh, in the Lansing area. And we did it all on public land um, where, you know, these people could go out and replicate that same kind of thing on their own. Um, the next weekend we did uh, a joint one with backcountry hunters and anglers, same kind of deal. Um, it's really cool. You start getting like text messages and emails from, uh, these participants that have gone through the program, like later in the season, like, Oh, Hey, I just went and bought a bow or I just bought a crossbow nice. or, Hey, you know, I was looking at this gun. Would this be a good deer gun? Um, you know, so you're, you're getting this, this, this communication with these adults or, you know, other peers out there that are, you know, similar age to you or whatever. It's just been a lot of fun to to interact with them and see the their the um the excitement that they have for it and you know i i think we've been tracking it and and matt correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's been close to like 80 percent of like retention rate and yeah. these people buying licenses the following year then that's yeah that's- so it, it's it's awesome it's an awesome recruitment tool do you now you guys you mentioned something and i wonder how this ties into it um you know in, in hunting there's been kind of a, a recent push for the public land like you know, public land push. It's, it's like a pretty hot topic. How, you know, traditionally, like you mentioned, um, you're seen as more of a land management type organization. Have you, how have you tried to reach these, you know, is the, uh, the fork to the field, to fork program, like an attempt to reach these people who are hunting on public land, but still should be and and can be managing deer property? Um, I don't think it's, it's a, it's a back end uh, try that really what it is was, you know, we, we went through a strategic planning process as an organization and said, if we can, if we were formed to teach people how to manage property better and how to improve deer herds mm-hmm. in terms of like age class and sex ratios and all that stuff, you know, at a national level, we can, we can say we've accomplished a lot of that. I mean, it's a literally a cultural shift. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's great. But, 32 years is a long time ago, right, right Jared? Yeah, Jared. Yeah, of you're old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 32 years is a long time ago, and things change, right? And so what, what are the things that are impacting us most now? And, you know, that's one of them is the recruitment side. So we, and, uh, yeah, I can't even take ownership of it, or, you know, neither can Josh. You know, Hank had, our person he had mentioned, had developed this saying, listen, if we're going to retain people into hunting, what better way than to find them yeah. where they're, interested in food interested in where their food comes from but they're also an adult and that's kind of where it was was based on on the public land side 
I mean, we're still, we still do a lot of public land uh, management. In fact, I had a call, a conference call earlier today, uh, are involved w- with the U.S. Forest Service at a pretty large scale. We signed a, an agreement with a 10 year agreement with the U.S. Forest Service and are going to be contracting, doing some work on public land across the country. Um, that needs to be, needs to, needs help. It's forests that are aging, um, that are declining in quality for wildlife. Um, need to be cut, but they're either not being done because of a lack of resources or a lack of contractors or what, whatever the case may be. But um, we're going to start really be doing boots on the ground in a lot of places, starting in Mississippi. We have places in Kentucky, but it's, we have an agreement for the entire eastern U.S., what they call their eastern region and southern region, which is mostly where whitetails live. Um, so we're invested in public lands on that level. Um, that said... Uh, and I've, I've gotten myself in a little bit of hot water talking about this before, but most hunting happens on private land. Um, most deer hunting happens on private land. So we can't forget, I mean, the public land movement is very valid, not only valid, you know, we're behind it. Um, and we want to give anybody that doesn't have property, um, you know, I, I am a landowner, but only recently am I a landowner and I don't even own that much land. I, I hunt on, on land that I have permission on. Um, but you know, I've been a, somebody that hunted on land by permission and, and I still do. Um, and everybody at the organization feels strongly about both of those things. Um, but we are definitely not following the public land route because it's hot. We think it's important to manage public land right. because it's the right thing to do. It's, yep. it's the right thing to do. And on the on the private land side, for for folks that are managing and work on private land, the reality is that most of the land in the east, which is where whitetails are, right. is privately owned. Most right. public land is in the west, and that's not where whitetails are. And you know, eighty percent of all hunting, all of all hunters, are whitetail hunters. So when you're talking about the the fuel of the economy, it's driven by whitetails and whitetail hunters, hmm. and that does happen on private land. So it's a balance. Um, you know, we yeah, have to, we have to make sure we balance both of those things. Yeah. And, and I think there's probably more, I, I know there's more field to fork events happening on, on private ground than, than public land. I, I may have maybe a couple of the only ones that took place on, on public ground. And it's just cause we had a large group. We had like t- eight and eight to 10 people going through. It's just the easiest way to do it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, the Athens program that Hank started, a portion of the, you know, a, a part of the training was how to go knock on a door, how to find access and, right. and ask people to hunt. Um, so that's just a, a, you know, a small, the, the public land is just a small component of the, of the field of work. And, you know, I, I think having more people being willing to go up to a, a door and, and ask for permission is, is probably more important than, you know, going to find somewhere to hunt in public ground, right. especially in the East. Right. Well, I was going to say, it's got to be site specific, right? If you picked up yeah. Josh and you put Josh in uh, Wyoming or, you know, Idaho, and you were on the ground as a, as a hunter and you were going to try to hold a field to fork event, which the intent is meet people in that community. They're local yep. that want to learn to hunt. The natural thing would be to take them out on the public land because it's everywhere. Absolutely. Um, but if you're in southern michigan or eastern new york where we're all located um you know there we have we have a lot of public land in new york in fact just north of where i live is adirondack park it's enormous yeah um but my inclination is to take them to a place that's private land that i have permission 
and that's where there's a lot of deer and, and teach them how to knock on doors and ask politely and, you know, and be respectful. And yeah. just like, you know, I'm, I'm in my young forties. I le- I did that for a long time was knocking on doors and I still do. I still ask to ask permission. What's your uh, success rate on, on door knocking? Um, you mean with a field of fork participant? Just you. I'm, I'm going personal. I, I figure <laughs> you're, a, you're a data guy. So I, you know, I figured you'd have some kind of, <laughs> some spreadsheets. Uh, I, I, you know, when I was in college, it was probably closer to like five to 10%, but, sure. uh, you know, <laughs> as, as you know what you're doing and you, and you increase, it's probably going up a little bit, maybe 25%, wow. one, one out of every four. Yeah. Uh, that would be at a high end, but yeah. Yeah. I imagine being a first time hunter that works in your favor too. Yeah. Right. You know, just being able to say, this is my first time, something I'm trying to get into. Yeah. Landowners probably going, ah, what damage can they do? (laughs) (laughs) The secret I found is I've got, I bring my daughter, she's seven. And I'll mention that I'm, I'm not using a rifle. I use a recurve. And they're like, ah, he's harmless. He's not going to shoot anything anyway. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a seven year old and a recurve. Have fun out there. So that's great. So say you do end up with your first piece of land. And uh, you're trying to just digest where to start. Um, maybe you've figured out what QDMA is, um, looking at your habitat, your herd. Where do you start as a first-time landowner? That's a great question. So, you know, when I was consulting, um, the first step of the process when somebody wanted to learn what to do, exactly what you're asking is you have to have a honest conversation of what are your goals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of folks will, will get in to the, I have this land, whether you just bought it or you just gained access to it, even if you don't own it, you know, you got permission, they're going to let you do something to it. Um, and they want to go out and they say, what do I do over in this corner? And let's get in the, in the truck or the, you know, side by side. And we'll go over to that side and say, okay, what do I, what should I do right here? And it's ultra focused on the here and now and at the, at the ground level. Um, I always say, step back, hold on a second. Let, let's talk about goals. Let's talk about, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what do you want to accomplish? And that process of actually articulating and writing down, you know, what your hopes and dreams are, you know, what do you want to accomplish? It makes you have a real, if you can, especially if you can not only articulate or write them down, they make them measurable because it goes from this thing that's in the back of your brain that's just floating there which you're, you're going to get yourself in trouble if you do that because you get three or 10 years down the line and be like, man, I remember when things were different, but were they different? You know, it's right. what you remember. Yep. But if you write down, listen, you know, I would like to shoot a buck that meets my standard one out of every three seasons or one out of every five seasons. Okay. Then what are those standards? Right. So then you got to write, write those down. And if you can't do that, we're talking about something data driven, right? Yeah. If you can't do that, then you go back to the drawing board and you say, okay, was, were my expectations too high? Was that, should I say lower my expectations in terms of the quality of the deer I want to shoot? How many deer? What if you just say, listen, I want me and my buddies and my, my kids to go out and I want us to each get a deer. It doesn't matter if they're bucks, does ages. It doesn't matter. I want to take X number of deer off this property this season and I want to maintain that. Well, if you can't maintain that number, then you're not meeting your goals. So the point there is, is by articulating and writing down, writing down something, it becomes a measurable thing. And then you can then set a time limit. That's what a management plan is and say, okay, 
if I'm not doing that over X number of years, then I can rehash the whole thing and say, all right, I either meter my expectations or I change my goals. And that's what a management plan does. Yeah. Um, so I always say start with, with that process. Now, we have tools and resources as we do on everything deer related that can help you write a, we actually have a management plan template. It's a fillable PDF that you can download, type in stuff. And it has links that'll actually take you to different articles and videos to learn. Um, One of the things I mentioned earlier is we teach a class. We have an online course, incredibly popular. It's, it's, it's a couple hundred bucks, but it's like 17 hours of video that walks you through habitat manager, the four cornerstones of QDM are habitat management, um, herd management, herd monitoring, and hunter management. So basically making decisions on education, on what to do, where to do it, all those things. You could take a class and we, we offer it online. We do some in-person classes too. And obviously everybody's locked down right now. So doing stuff online is an option. Right. Um, but you know, I, I would say walk through that process. If you want, if you're, if you're a DIY kind of person, those classes are really great. Yeah. Um, you can also hire somebody to help you write a management plan. That's what I used to do. And there are consultants that do that, um, that will actually, you know, help you kind of formulate objectives and goals. Some of them write documents that you can have. Um, I think I've gone away from actually having a written document, a spiral bound thing that I put on my shelf. You don't really need that. It should be a living document that you can change yeah. in a moment if you want, you know, but there, and there's elements to, to all of that. Um, I would say start by kind of figuring out what you want to accomplish and, you know, we, we can help. We have lots of different tools and resources that, that can offer assistance, whether it's going to your local branch and meeting people of like mind um, and talking to them about what they do. Um, Michigan is a, you want to know what Mark was asking, what's hot? The hot thing in Michigan is cooperatives. Yeah, I was just you know, going to ask neighbors, about that. Neighbors get together. To, you know, that's that's how I hunt. I have, you know, I, I have six and a half acres. Yep. But, uh, you know, people around me and I talk and we have a co-op and we're managing great deer because of that. Yeah. Um, you know, so forming a co-op is a great way to increase your footprint and get everybody on the same page. It takes effort. I'm not going to lie. You got to, especially if you're the one organizing the co-op, you, you got to like get people together and getting people to agree on stuff is difficult. I mean, shoot, I mean, our, our colleague Kip says, you know, getting deer hunters to agree that deer are brown is hard enough, right? You know, it's <laughs> right. just like, um, but everything's worth, you know, if you put time in uh, and, and energy and work, you know, like anything in life, the more you work at it, the better, more successful it's going to be. So that's something you can do. Well, that's cool um, but, that you mentioned, you know, you're yeah. six and a half acres, right? Like you yeah. can manage smaller pieces of land rather than like these 80 parcel or 80 acre parcels and up, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and one of the cool things about research is we've seen in terms of deer movements, their home ranges are not, you know, they might have in the fall these ginormous home ranges. Yeah. But at, in the summertime, their home range is much smaller than that. And if particularly if you're talking about like a doe family group or a doe and fawns yep. uh, or a bachelor group, they'll have 30 to 50 acre um, home range core area sizes. So, you know, if you're working with two or three neighbors, you can affect the nutrition of deer at a local scale um, 
really at a high level. Pretty quick. It's just during the fall. Yeah, it's yeah. just in the fall, deer start running everywhere. So obviously, the larger the acreage, the better. Yeah. You know, I hunt in a couple of different places. Um, uh, my my property, actually, where we live, but some public land, and I have neighbors across the street that are doing stuff. And then I have my brother-in-law's property is a, is a, it has some acreage to it. It's a, it's a working farm and the neighbors around him are working too. So I can drive 20 minutes away and get into a one co-op or I, I hunt right outside behind my house and I have a little footprint here too. I'm just trying to make things as best as possible for me from what I've learned through QDMA. I mean, that's basically what, how I set up my own hunting. Have you done anything as far as um, herd surveys with your property and your co-op? The co-op, Yes. Uh, we have done, this is our 11th or 12th seasons. We can't, in New York, you can't um, bait or put minerals down um, because CWD positive. So yeah. uh, that is illegal. So I don't do any camera surveys. I've actually tried to do unbaited. And I, let me step back there. There's a couple different ways to monitor populations and herd structure. A lot of people like trail cameras and trail cameras are a huge tool. I love them. I have a bunch of them. And so does a bunch of my buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, the technique to monitor deer populations with a camera is based on data that has bait in front of the camera for so many days and you collect all those photos. There's a way to do that unbaited. It's basically a random selection of deer as they walk by a camera. Right. And the scale at what it was, what we were doing and how much effort it was, I could get the same data from another easier method. So I chose not to do it. Um, and I wasn't guaranteed to get a lot of pictures and I wanted to see the, the pictures of the deer. So I, I, I have tried using it through camera. One of the best ways that I have found and from what I've learned through working at the organization is just collecting information on what you see while you're hunting. So I'll call observation data. So every time I hunt, every time one of the, the guys or gals in the co-op hunts, they write down how many hours they sat, whether it was a morning or evening how many deer they saw, Hmm. how many were bucks, does, fawns, and deer they couldn't identify. And I collect all that information and analyze that at the end of the season, and it tells me what's happening during the fall in a really great way to be able to change for the next season. We also do, in the spring, a a couple different transect surveys where we will walk these long lines Hmm. and stop every so often and collect data on how badly the property is being browsed. It's called a browse impact survey. Um, and also at the same time, what's called a, it's a population survey through deer pellets, deer, deer poop. So every so often I stop and do a circle uh, radius huh. and count, count pellets. And I can get deer density estimate from that. Interesting. And, and uh, the interesting thing, you know, if you guys had a visual on this, on this, I, I I'd show you, um, I have tracked, over time, you know, as we've tried to increase pressure on antlerless deer, Josh was talking about this before, it's a direct inverse relationship where we have seen the deer density estimate through the pellet count survey come down because we've shot more and more and more deer from the beginning. And the browse impact has shown a reverse trend of there's more and more vegetation in the woods. Gotcha. So right. it wasn't open under the canopy before, now it's not the, the deer has been herd has been reduced and you're seeing plants come back that weren't there um at a very simple way of saying all that and then i use the observation data to decide when to dial back our antlerless harvest which we actually had to do all right um, okay you know, if you look at a snapshot of 12 years of data we hit the deer hard hard the first five 
and we realized we were getting to a point by looking at deer density and browse and all this stuff that we could dial back. So we actually loosened up our, our doe harvest for about four seasons. Yeah. And now we're getting to the point where we're going to probably have to start shooting more of them again because they're actually coming back. Pretty um, quick. That's that, that quick, huh? Yeah. You know, I mean, they're pretty resilient species. You give them, give them a couple of years and as long as they're not getting anything major uh, happening to them in terms of like recruitment productivity, uh, deer, it's going that's how deer management is. You reduce it, they start to creep back, you reduce it, they right. start to creep back, you're just tracking it. Just trimming it back. Yep. Now, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it you got a antlerless uh, harvest if you if you shoot about 33%, a 30 33% of your antlerless uh, deer, you're going to just pretty much stay the same in terms of population levels. In, in, <laughs> in most in most places that are productive, like so, you guys know that the state is obviously variable in terms of productivity. Mm-hmm. Where where sure. there's a lot of agriculture, where there's a lot of farming practices, <clears throat> those places that are highly highly productive, yeah, it's about a third of the adult does that need to be removed to just stay stable. If that area is experiencing issues like predation or disease or you're in a less productive area a little further north you know less ag then it's generally 20 to 30 percent 20 to 33 percent in some cases like if i drove to an hour and a half from here and i went up into the adirondacks to the high peaks yeah you know you would want to probably reduce no dose every year the population can't sustain itself so it's it's site specific but yeah, Josh, Josh is accurate. And that's what's so cool about deer management is that where James is or where Mark is or where Jared are, I don't know if you guys are all in the same town or not, but the properties that you're on are going to have these little nuances. You know, where you are in the county, where you are in the town, there are going to be these little nuances that are affected by your neighbors basic, based on what that looks like, what's being planted for row crops, what people are doing for food plots, what they're shooting. You know, if they're if they're traditional hunters or if they're managing like you are, and there's no silver bullet, you got to mm-hmm. dig into the data. I think uh, uh, James will like me to say that you got to dig into it and study. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like what you know, what's happening right here on the ground, and you get this like intuition of knowing what to do based on the data and say, okay, you know, I have this. There's the science, but then there's the the art of wildlife management. And uh, there's a lot of famous professors and, and book writers. If you've never heard of like Aldo Leopold before, yep. but there's, there, there's this art to it that we all have in us. We all have this brain up here and we have this intuition where we can say, based on all the data, I know this is happening, but I also can feel, you know, I need to dial back or we need to shoot some more does and, right. and you, you meter that based on all that. But yeah, it's cool. I love it. I mean, I geek out on it. I, I, Josh knows I have a, I've, I'm trying to, to bring a popularity to a hashtag called deer nerd. Hashtag. Oh, I like it. <laughs> hey, uh, Jared, throw that we'll one up on the Instagram that. tomorrow, will you? Hey, we'll get it going for we'll you. We'll get that, that going. We'll support deer nerd. Yep. All right, good. Yeah, I think as a new landowner or land manager, it's just trying to have the confidence to make those sort of decisions. I mean, in my scenario, I'm hunting 160 acres of family owned property and uh it's basically me and my immediate family and uh you know we're seeing this fall we were seeing 50 to 60 does in a night and a handful of bucks and it's like between two three hunters how big of a dent can you put in that and like what what means do you have to go to to find balance in a population like that Um, yeah you gotta you have the perfect property 
you got the perfect property to have a new hunter out for a field that's, of fork event. That's why we <laughs> <developed> <laughs> and, I, and I offered nice or a Jared. Yeah. Or Jared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's, you know, it takes a lot of work. I mean, we, um, you know, hunting's fun and it should always be fun. It should never, and, and I say it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's always going to be fun. Um, and if it's not fun, you shouldn't be doing it, but, um, you know, it, it, you can dive into the details and get lost in it. Um, but I, I like it. I like being able to know a little bit more. And it's, you know, I, I use this example and I've written about it. Um, you know, even to the, to the simplicity of knowing the age of a deer yeah. um, and, and kind of thinking about some of that information. I tell this story. So the, when we, not right behind my house, but 20 minutes away, when we started the co-op there, the neighbors around those farms. So my, my brother-in-law's place is 200 acres. So it's about the same scale as you're, you're working at. And the the co-op's about 1700 acres once we get everybody together. Um, So it's a bunch of landowners, you know, 200, one of the larger properties there. Um, And getting everybody together in the summer to me has been now is easy because everybody loves it. But in the beginning it was difficult. And uh, um, they had not been shooting enough does. So we saw the numbers that you're talking about and we had to shoot a lot of does. And it took me actually two seasons to convince the co-op members to shoot enough. Like the first season I said, we need to shoot. um, I can't remember. It was somewhere around 20 does. Um, And, or maybe I said, we need to shoot closer to 30. And uh, we only had shot 20. Um, Next season I got them to shoot a little more. I think they like inched into it and that's fine. I mean, all we have is time, right? It's a cultural um, shift for a yeah, lot of yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So by the third or fourth season, we were humming. They were, they believed me, and we were, we were shooting lots of does. But those first couple of years, we were removing does of such advanced age, and I was able to oh, use wow. that as an example to say, look, guys, you have not shot enough does, and here, look how, like, 80% of the does the first two years that we killed were, were well over four years old, which is wow. it was, it was a sign. And I will tell you, we killed does that were in their teens, the what? oldest, the, yeah, the oldest two were 15 and a half no. <laughs> and 20 and a half. No, I killed a cow. 20 and a half year old doe. Holy yeah. cow. Was she I just, didn't know a deer could live that Was long. she just yeah. like lean, you know? Yeah, she was on her last leg. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. she was. And teeth. <laughs> yeah. I, I, wrote a blog, I wrote a blog about it for our website. And my point of that was think about how many seasons that deer has lived. You, yeah. know, you know, it was, it was uh, 2013 that, that he had shot that doe. And I thought, okay, 20 years ago, Jurassic Park had been launched. Yeah. Right. You know, think about <laughs> yes. what, what president was in, uh, in, in office, you know, just what's happened in like, think about uh, our clothes, what our clothes looked like 20 years ago. Yeah. And she had lived through all that. There's dial up internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I was like, think about, the educational opportunity just because I showed that guy the teeth of the deer and said, listen, I've been telling you, we haven't shot a lot enough deer. These deer live in this old, this long deer in the wild. Don't normally live that long. Right. You know, just because you guys have given them a chance to, to make it that long. Anyway. Well, and they don't have any other predators and, and, and many of many of these places because there's not a lot of coyotes. We kind of got rid of them. And so if we're not kind of filling that predator role, you get yeah. old deer that are, you know, not healthy. The herd is not healthy. We, uh, you know, on our, on our co-op, we did not have a lot of, I mean, we have bears. They're starting to show up more and more. We're in a part of the state where they're, they're, we didn't have a season in the beginning. And now we actually do have a bear season. 
Um, and we have coyotes come and go, you know, in terms of numbers, but when we started, it wasn't, um, there's a decent amount of coyotes now. Um, but we had reduced the deer density to a point where the predators, I believe were actually keeping the the deer herd suppressed. So we, we had to relax our doe harvest to basically flood the predators. And now we're at a point where we can bring it back. So it's this, this constant like wave of, making those decisions and you know there that's that gut you, you're talking about confidence confidence comes from experience right right and experience comes from doing it yeah. you just got to do it you got to learn the principles take the deer steward class you know you know read yeah. some stuff on our website and apply it and every season you're going to learn a little bit more there's a lot out there so don't get overwhelmed by it but just learn a little bit more each season and you know over time you will become a a the the expert deer manager for your neighborhood you're going to know what i won't you know right. I, I have a degree degree in it but if if i got in my truck and drove to your house i'm not going to know what's going on there you'll know better than i did right because you you, you boots know on the ground situation. yeah exactly well that's awesome guys i can't thank you enough uh for your time today it's been it's been a good conversation i'm uh i'm pumped to get back up to the property and start uh Chipping away, gaining that experience. Yeah, this, goals this, for you. This is a uh, Mark month, really, uh, and it's all about getting Mark this giant, big old giant buck. You know, pretty soon. Um, and a lot less does. That'd be great too. Goal number one for Mark: shoot a big buck. Shoot a monster buck. Goal number two: shoot a twenty-year-old doe. Yep. <laughs> no, I'm not going to add that to my management plan. Yeah, yeah that's, that's probably unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> that's a trophy. If you get something to go after, it's hard to find those. Yeah, you got to mount that one for sure. <laughs> Full shoulder mount. Uh, all right, well, guys, thank you so much. Um, we're gonna definitely start the uh, deer nerd hashtag. We're gonna we're gonna push this. Uh, it's good good move. Um, That's and, awesome. So <laughs> thanks for jumping on, uh, Josh. Matt, good good to meet you guys, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. Oh wait, before thanks we do, wait, uh, Jared, I forgot something. If people oh, need boy. more information, where do they where do they go? There you go. There you go. Uh, just qdma.com. Yeah. You'll find a world of information on the Quality Deer Management Association, but it's www.qdma.com. And you can find Josh and my contact information on that website. Excellent. Yep. Well, sure thank thing. you guys. And I didn't forget. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thank yeah thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Volga Hunting Podcast. If you guys like what you hear and want to follow along on what we're currently up to, Hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on and follow us on Instagram at Boga Hunting. 